You're listening to Differentiated with Ben Silverman, where investment research analysts dive into insider data and demystify the signals that drive one-of-a-kind investment ideas. Welcome to Differentiated. I'm your host, Ben Silverman. Today, we'll be looking at insiders and asking the question, did they call market bottom in 2022? Next, we'll be talking with Verity Data Senior Analyst Ali Raja about buybacks. And lastly, we'll be looking at the curious case of Coupa Software. Did an unusually timed stock award for the CEO provide insight into future M&A? Something interesting happened in 2022. Corporate executives and board members didn't buy their own stocks. Well, some did, but the volume and breadth of insider buying was unexpectedly low. For 45 years, one of the best signals of a market bottom was insider buying. Starting in 1975 and going through 2020, insider buying spiked at nearly every market bottom. This includes the great financial crisis in March 2009 when the market bottomed. And in fact, on the very day the market bottomed, the number of insiders who bought stock hit a record high. It also includes 2011 when the U.S. credit downgrade crisis hit stocks hard. It also includes 2016 when a combination of banking woes and energy prices hit stocks hard in January of that year. And most famously, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan stepped up and led a group of financial insiders in buying. And most recently, it happened in 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic crushed stocks and insiders responded by buying at near record levels. So in 2022, when stocks essentially fell off a cliff, you would have thought that insiders would have stepped into the void and bought stock aggressively. But they didn't do that. Instead, many insiders moved to the sidelines. They didn't sell stock, but they also didn't buy stock. And that's been a change from 45 years of behavior. So when we look at what happened in 2022 and we look at 2023 and ask the question, has the market found a bottom? Well, the insiders are telling us it hasn't. There's nothing to say that the insiders can't be wrong. We've seen this at individual stocks over the years. They're certainly not always right when they buy, but as a group, they've been really, really smart. When stocks get oversold at an extreme level, when valuations fall well below where insiders believe their businesses should be valued, they step up and buy stock. So why didn't that happen in 2022? And what does that mean for 2023? So one reason it didn't happen in 2022 is quite possibly because of the amount of insider selling in 2021. Insider selling hit a record high in 2021, both in the dollar value of sales and in the number of sellers. And that heightened activity occurred throughout the year and really picked up steam during the last quarter of 2021, when you had people like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and Tesla CEO Elon Musk selling hundreds of millions, and in some cases billions, of dollars of shares. So when the calendar turned to 2022 and the market started to sink and stocks started to lose tremendous value, in many cases coming down from valuations that many investors thought were too high, insiders simply stopped selling. What we would have expected was come the back half of 2022 when insiders had a good six months to not only digest the current market conditions, whether it be inflation, energy prices, 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine, other geopolitical events that insiders would have bought. Now, we saw some of this in May of 2022. We saw a good level of insider buying, but there wasn't the type of follow-up we see that signals market bottoms. And sure enough, the market didn't bottom until October of 2022. Whether that's the actual bottom or not, you know, that's anyone's guess. There's plenty of market prognosticators who believe that the market still has room to move down. There's others who believe we've already found the bottom. But importantly, insiders have been one of the few signals out there that are tried and true. They come out and they buy stock when they think stocks are undervalued. So let's take a quick look at the numbers here and see what we witnessed in 2022. The good news for market bulls is that insider selling hit a record low. So if we look back on the last 25 years of insider selling data, the 8,300 or so unique insiders who sold in 2022 was the lowest during the period. Year over year, the number of unique insider sellers fell 34%. Those are good things. Insiders didn't feel comfortable selling. A lot of them passed up turning stock-based compensation into liquidity, which is a typical and normal behavior for them. And you know, you can imagine the conversations going on in their head. Well, the stock was at $120 six months ago. It's at 80 now. I'm not going to cash out now. I'm not going to generate that liquidity. I don't really need it. I sold a lot of stock last year. Instead, I'm going to wait for that stock to rebound. So we saw a lot of that. We saw what we call insiders pushing their sales off. We know they're going to sell. They push them off to a later period. What we didn't, again, see is the buying that we wanted to see. We had about 5,200 unique insiders buy in 2022. It's nice. It's a 14% increase from 2021, but it pales in comparison to 2008 when we had a record of over 9,500 insiders buying. So again, 5,200 in 2022 compared to more than 9,500 in 2008. The number of buyers is, hit a 14-year low last year. It's also the fourth lowest on record. And the thing is, in those other years, I'm looking at years like 2004, 2013, 2017, 2021, the market did great. The market rose. So we had people, they, it made sense then. Stocks were building momentum. They were revaluing higher. Less insiders were buying. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is when stocks get hit hard like they did last year and didn't buy. So what does the lack of insider buying in 2022 mean? Well, it's a message from insiders. There's uncertainty in the air. There's uncertain about near-term outlooks for both their companies and for the wider economy. It doesn't necessarily mean that they think the economy is going to get worse, but they're not willing to bet that it's going to get better in the near term. And that's an important takeaway here. You can still get good information from insiders, though, whether it's selling, a lack of selling, or at the companies where there is insider buying. And that's one thing to think about. In these other periods where we had big drawdowns to the market and you had a critical mass of insider buying, you could have just bought the market during that period. That's what the signal is. Buy the market when all the insiders are buying. That's a good signal. It works. It's one that I've invested on personally over the years. But when you get into an environment like this, then you got to start separating the wheat from the chaff. Then you got to start looking at the companies where there are buyers, where there's convicted buyers, and there's buyers that have strong buying history. And that's something we'll explore in future podcasts.
There's a lot of debate in the marketplace of investing ideas about whether buybacks matter. Here with me to discuss buybacks is Ali Raja, Senior Analyst at Verity Data. Ali has been analyzing buybacks for almost a decade. Ali, welcome to Differentiated. Thanks, Ben, for having me. Thanks for joining us. What are buybacks and why are they important? A buyback is when a company uses its own money to purchase its stock. Buybacks are important because in the simplest form, they can help increase stock prices. If you think about it, there's less outstanding shares for the same company, so it can be a good thing. Now, there's a lot of skeptics out there as far as management teams artificially boosting their stocks with that. But it's important to track because if you're looking at fundamentals of a company, buybacks change the fundamental picture when it comes to return on equity. But it's also a good lens into how management teams operate their businesses. Are they risky when it comes to capital allocation? Do they use it well? And do they lean into market corrections and when times are risky or not? And maybe some just align their cash flows with buybacks and just kind of look at it in this more conservative manner. Now, you told me that there were record buybacks in 2021. When I say record buybacks, I mean that the dollar value of buybacks at U.S. companies was an all-time high. That seems pretty risky to me, and that risk is not borne out well, considering what the markets did in 2022. So when we look at 2022, what was the big picture for buybacks for the year? We actually hit a record on a quarterly basis in Q1 of 2022, but the volume has actually regressed in 2022. We've come off that high, and it's uh, come with stocks pulling back, and, and a lot of investors would have liked to see that buybacks actually accelerate further into this weakness of 2022. Well, I was going to say, that sounds counterintuitive. You're buying when stock prices are high and not buying when stock prices are low. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, you know, look at history, and this is what's caught up a lot of people is how well has it been timed. So for starters, buybacks, you know, when you look at timing out recessions and actual severe corrections in the market, it's not been that great. Companies tend to get in cash conservation mode, but they're actually really good at calling pullbacks. When you look at Q1 of last year, it came with stocks pulling back. So it was another instance of companies coming in on that initial pullback, but they eased up on the pace throughout the year, and it's not what you want to see. I understand. Companies, when profits are high, cash flow is strong, they're going to buy back more stock. Is that the best use of capital allocation if you're repatriating equity at you know X price, and then a year later, the stock is down along with the rest of the market very significantly. How does that bear out? You know, How do you, as an investor, rationalize that? Is it you have to just think more long-term, or is there a lot of sort of buyer's regret there, buyer's remorse when you look at a, um, a management team that is aggressively buying stock back at high prices? Yeah, I mean, there can be some, some buyer's remorse there, of course. But, you know, when we're looking at the macro data, there's a lot of skew in this as well that we got to keep in mind. You know, large cap companies have different motivations for buybacks, whether it be M&A or how they want to manage their cash balances. But, you know, you look at a company like Apple, and they generally account for about 10% of the market-wide buyback volume. So, you know, just looking at the market-wide value, it's not really a good indicator of what companies are doing as a whole. You know, sometimes we'll look at breadth, how much participation there is in this quarter and this year versus another year just to kind of avoid the skew of some of these large cap companies. There's sort of been a long held theory that management uses buybacks to do two things. Uh, one would be to mask waning or lack of growth. And the second would be to um, boost the stock price, therefore 
making their stock-based compensation more valuable. Do you have you seen examples of this, or is this sort of a uh, you know just a theory that's hard to nail down and whether there's any truth to it? I mean, anecdotally, yeah, you see it, and you know sometimes it's going to depend on how management is incentivized. Some management teams have EPS targets as part of their compensation packages. So obviously buybacks will help achieve those targets. But management teams have a lot of different reasons to buy back their shares. They need to manage their cash and and they have a lot of different investment opportunities. And what we focus on is companies who are buying back stock because they truly believe their stocks are undervalued. And they have a proven history of doing that too and, and timing it out historically. So the macro data can tell us some things, but it's really probably not helping me make great investment decisions if I'm trying to use it for macro signaling. When we start thinking about it on a company level, where do we want to focus? Because as a consumer of not just financial data, but financial news, I see a lot of headlines about when companies announce a buyback plan. I see almost no headlines about when a company actually executes a buyback. Yeah, a lot of the news coverage is actually focused on buyback plans getting initiated or increased. We'll just label it plans getting refreshed. It's a lot easier to track. You hear it in the news. Company XYZ is authorizing a new $1 billion buyback plan. It sounds really big, but it doesn't always signal how much they're actually going to use and what their cadence is going to be like. Some companies will authorize a new plan and they won't actually use it. And some companies are really perfunctory and just refresh their plan every single year. For instance, Apple, they just increase their plan every April alongside earnings. And there's not a lot to take away from the plan because it's often, you know, the same characteristics as the prior year. But we want to see how they're using the plan. How are they executing it? Are they using it into, into dips or are they buying back into strength and just kind of matching their cash flows? So a buyback initiation is it just, you know, make sure that we're, we've got our, uh, I's dotted and T's crossed here. A buyback initiation doesn't mean that the company is actually going to repurchase all those shares. Is that correct? You are correct. They do not have to follow through. It's just giving them the authorization. Management has the opportunity to buy back if they want to. Right. And then, and even then, if if we believe, perhaps based on maybe things they've said publicly, like on an earnings call that they are going to repurchase shares, we still don't know how much stock they're going to repurchase in a given quarter or a given month even, you know, or how opportunistic they're going to be. Is that accurate? No, you don't know ahead of time. But a lot of people don't realize you get a really good feel for how they did after the fact. And so every quarter, companies file in their 10Q and they actually show the amount they repurchased per month and actually at which price. Now, people don't realize that data is available, particularly what price they bought back. But, you know, knowing the price that a company is picking for their buybacks, and you know, retiring their own shares, it's helpful to you know, really understand management's philosophy towards capital allocation, how efficient they are towards managing their investment opportunities as a whole. We want to see companies efficiently use their buyback programs. And that can be just really smartly timing it and understanding their stock and where it is now and where it's going to go. We want to see a good history of that as well when we're looking at individual companies. Now, when it comes to the difference of buyback plans and that signaling by management that they're going to buy back stock versus just really executing on it quietly, Wind Resorts is an interesting example. This is a company that hasn't actually refreshed their buyback plan and initiated a new plan since 2016. However, they've been in the market several times since, you know, 2018, they bought back some stock and 
There's been no updates to their buyback plan, no change to their capacity, and yet they were back in the market in 2022. And they were a team who you know went in and bought back stock as it fell back below $60. That looks really good for them now as the stock trades above $100 now. So like anything else, I would assume some management teams are better at this than others. Yeah, there are teams who are really good at using our buybacks historically. We have long records of um, some management teams who have you know been there a decade or more and have a good history of using our buyback program. But others, they tend to just match it with their cash flow. And sometimes you get this situation where buybacks will ramp up at the worst time, basically. So I think IBM is the poster child for dumb buybacks. Um, the former CEO, Sam Palmasano, about 15 years ago, made buybacks part of their overarching corporate strategy and talked about it for years. We're going to buy back X amount of shares, billions and billions of dollars of stock, and it just turned out awfully. And, you know, IBM shareholders ended up seeing their cash used to buy back shares and at prices that kept plummeting and never recovered. So there's an example of a company that's bad at executing buybacks, and at least the old management was. What's an example of a company that's good at executing buybacks? Yeah, on that topic as well, I do want to just mention on IBM, you know, you have a situation where management is incentivized or has a lot of goals around EPS. So, you know, we look at those kinds of motivations as well. But when we do look at companies who have a good history of using it historically, one that comes to mind is MedPace, a uh, healthcare services company. Their CEO and their management team has picked out good spots historically. They often just buy back really large amounts when their stock is, you know, really experiencing periods of weakness and pulling back. And they have a good record. And that was a company we saw buy back heavily in 2022. And it was another instance where it proved out really well for them. Not only were they timing it well, but they were very aggressive in retiring a big chunk of their outstanding stock. So it's like you said, they were aggressive. And so if you're looking at a company that buys back shares regularly, we're looking for companies that are more aggressive with the dollar spend on weakness. Is that correct? Yeah, we look at dollar value, but we also look at what is that equivalent to the shares outstanding. So when you look at a company like Apple, who does 20 billion in buyback, they have a trillion plus market cap. And so it can actually look pretty small. But you look at a you know mid cap company who's buying hundreds of millions, and that's a big chunk of their outstanding stock. Interesting. Well, I appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much, Ali. Thanks for having me, Ben. executives at public companies typically receive stock-based compensation once a year. So what does it mean when a company hands out an additional award? Well, at one such company, it meant a huge payday for the CEO and one that possibly played a role in the company being sold. For investors, what it meant was potentially a tip-off that a deal was coming. On July 28, 2022, the board of directors of business spend management software provider Coupa Software handed the company's CEO, Rob Bernstein, a $31 million gift. The gift was a restricted stock award of 390,000 shares. But the full value of that gift was not supposed to be realized for five years. Bernstein didn't have to wait that long. On December 12th of 2022, Coupa Software announced that private equity firm Thomas Bravo would acquire the company for $81 per share in cash. That deal, expected to close in the first half of 2023, will result in any unvested restricted shares held by executives at Coupa Software accelerating vesting 
and being cashed out. That includes the 390,000 shares that Bernstein received just four and a half months before the deal was announced. So why is this all important? Bernstein's July award came out of nowhere. Like other executives at the company, he had already received a restricted stock and a performance-based restricted stock award in March of 2022. In fact, that's when the company normally gives out restricted stock and performance-based restricted stock every year. It's March. That's when the executives expect it, and that's when they've been getting it. But July, out of nowhere, the company disclosed that it had heavily incentivized Bernstein. Not only did he get the 390,000 shares of restricted stock, he also got a huge performance-based award of 585,000 shares. Now, that award will not vest as a result of the company being sold. But the 390,000 shares, which weren't supposed to begin vesting until 2025 and not complete vesting until 2027, will accelerate vest when the deal closes. That's going to result in about $31.6 million pre-tax in Bernstein's pocket. That off-cadence award that Bernstein received in July of 2022 is an example of a company heavily incentivizing a key executive to get something moving. And in this case, this was to get the company moving out the door and to be acquired. Now, Looking at the background of the merger in the proxy filings that Coupa has filed, it shows that discussions with the buyer, Thomas Bravo, did not really occur in earnest until September. So this is a good two months after the award. This is actually when Thomas Bravo started making their first real overtures and made a verbal suggestion that they acquire the company at a certain premium. However, The background of the merger also shows that Bernstein and the company's chairman had been talking to various private equity firms since May. Now, they make it clear that there were no offers on the table in May or June or July or August. But what was clear was that there was some sniffing around going on by PE firms. Now, some of this is presented as some general, well, The investment bank that we typically work with introduced the CEO to some private equity people so the private equity people could understand the lay of the land in uh, the software world. But, you know, reading in between the leaves, what you understand is that the CEO and the board was well aware of the fact that there could be some interest from PE firms. Now, we don't know the exact reason why the award was made, but you can hazard to guess that the board had knowledge that there was the potential, again, the potential, nothing definite, and there was nothing supposedly material going on, but that there was the potential for a buyout or buyout interest from a PE firm. And with this, they gave Bernstein a huge award. Now, again, the performance-based part of that award is gone. It won't vest. But these 390,000 shares, which presumably, if you look at the fact that they weren't going to be investing for three years and wouldn't complete investing for five years, sort of on the surface looks like what we would call a retention award. Hey, let's incentivize him to stick around. Well, it incentivized him to stick around and sell the company. So that's good. That's good for him. If you're a Coupa shareholder and you're happy with the $81 per share that the company is being sold for, then it's good for you as well. But more importantly, for investors as a whole, as a class, this is an example of why you want to pay attention to stock-based compensation. When companies are giving these types of off-cadence awards, it could mean that the board 
wants to incentivize the CEO not necessarily to grow the business, not necessarily to stick around for five years and, you know, be the long-term guide of this company. It just might mean that they're trying to incentivize the CEO to sell that company. And I think this is an example where this award, which there's very little information on outside of the disclosure of the award, was really geared at making sure that the CEO was going to be around to sell this company and get a good price for it. And so this is why we want to look at companies like Coupa Software, because monitoring unusual and off-cadence stock-based compensation awards is one way to get an investment process that's differentiated. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was brought to you by Verity. Verity designs software that helps over 360 asset managers discover one-of-a-kind insights, streamline research workflows, and manage fund research productively. To learn more or begin a free trial, visit verityplatform.com. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was edited, mixed, and scored by Calvin Martin.